Let's take our Bibles tonight and open them once again to our study of the book of Ephesians. It's been quite some time since we've been here. We are returning once again to where we left off, chapter 1. And we've really uh, just kind of gotten into the middle of this entire passage and looking at really the grand truths that are here for us in verses 3 through 14. And so I want to read these verses for us again tonight, and then we'll begin to focus our attention back in verses 7 through 12 um, as we begin our time. So just follow along as I read, beginning in verse 3. The Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, so that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us, In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the kind intention which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. And for this reason... I also have heard of the faith of the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and the love for all the saints. So do not cease. I do not cease giving thanks for you in prayers while making mention of you in my prayers that the Lord God, the Lord of our Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Let's just bow in a word of prayer as we, Commit our time to the Lord. Father, we thank you that we can be here once again together. That we can open your word together. That we can consider the truths of it that ought to have impact upon our lives and our hearts as we live out our life here on this earth for you. Lord, I pray that these truths would be on our minds, that they would be in our thoughts, that they would be... uh, being used by you in us as you intend so that we would indeed live as we are exhorted here in this passage to the praise of your glory. And so honor your name in that way for us tonight as we study together in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> you remember I said in a previous, our previous study that every sentence has a point. Doesn't matter which language you are using, where you go in the world, what kind of dialogue they're using. Every time someone speaks a sentence, they have a point in that sentence. And the Apostle Paul, certainly in this one long sentence, has a point, even though it is filled, and because it is filled with other statements that lend color to the main point. And the main point is simple. It is this, that you and I who are believers, really we could just call this the main intent of Paul, you and I who are believers in Jesus Christ, that is genuine believers, those who are saved by faith in Christ, where their sins are forgiven through the vicarious death of Jesus Christ, through His burial and resurrection, those who truly know Jesus Christ, we, the Christian, are to be living to the praise of the glory of God's grace. This is how we are to live. Of course, as we get further into the book of Ephesians, we will see that played out or or defined out, if you will, as the Apostle Paul lists in chapter 4 and following, just how it is this 
reality looks in the life of a Christian. So that is simply to say that in our life, we are to speak well of God. We, when we talk of God, when we talk of our Savior Jesus Christ, we are to speak well of God, and we are to live well for God with our lives. This is what the intent of God has for us. We are to conduct our lives in such a way that the effects of God's grace the effects of what God has accomplished by His grace in our lives is on display through our lives, through how we live. We live to the praise of the glory of His grace. I don't believe that there can be any more crucial a doctrine in all of Scripture whereby it exhorts us as believers to live worthy of the calling with which we have been called. You notice, if you just turn over to chapter 4, just for a moment, these are the very words that the Apostle Paul uses. Chapter 4, Paul says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Well, what is our calling? Well, he lists all that back in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And he says, I want you to walk worthy of the manner that you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So you notice that the whole goal of our walking to the glory of God and the glory of His grace in an understanding in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called is unity in the body. So this is the reason for which Paul writes. You notice, if you go back up to chapter 3 in verse 14... Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able, get this, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length, and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Why? So that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Paul's not saying that we lack something in our salvation when we know Christ. What Paul is saying, what we lack very oftentimes, is a depth of understanding of all that God has done for us. Paul says, I pray that you would understand how deep, how wide, how high, how how great this love of Christ is for you that God has shown for you so that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Because when you're filled up with the fullness of God in your heart and your life, you just burst with the praise to the glory of His grace. And so this is what Paul is headed for. In fact, when he says fullness of God, that that simply just means an equal understanding of all that God has done for you. God wants you to have a full understanding of all that He has accomplished for you through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so back in chapter 1, this is where Paul begins. This is the foundation. This is like putting gas in your spiritual gas tank. He begins by helping us understand all that God has done for us. All that God has accomplished for those that He are His children so that they might live to the praise of the glory of His grace. Now we've already looked at verses 3 through 6. And this is probably why the translators put the punctuation where they did in this section, even though it's one sentence in the original language, because they understood the intent of the Apostle Paul. The drive was just that, this drive to understand what God has done so that we would live to the praise of the glory of His grace, which is why they break it up that way, verses 3 to 6, 7 to 11, or 7 to 12, and then 13 through and 14, or 3 to 10, and then uh, 11 to 14. So you have this 
Praise to the glory of His grace. Praise to the glory of His grace. Praise to the glory of His grace. Three times throughout this section. And that gives us the the drive in the Apostle Paul. He wants us to understand what God has accomplished for us so that we would live to the praise of God's glory so that we would be a unified people in this world. Like I said, we already looked at verses 3 through 6. and We're reminded by the words of the Apostle Paul that he uses that the praise we live out When we think about living out to the praise of the glory of His grace, the praise that we live out is to be commensurate with or commensurate to the praise that we have been given by God. It sounds rather strange to say it that way, but that's exactly how Paul says it here. Because in verse 4, he says, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. In other words, God is to be praised by us by how we live, understanding the grace of God in our life and what He has accomplished for us. God is to be appraised according as, or just as, or according to how He has blessed us with all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. In other words, commensurate praise to God in our life, commensurate obedience to God, which is an outworking of the praise to His glory, is commensurate with what we understand about all that God has given us. So it's, com- it's a, a comparative way, if you will. It's equal, if you will, to what God has given to us, then we are to be praising Him. So where our understanding lies and all that God has given us, then the praise flows out of that, which is exactly why the Apostle Paul said it the way he did in chapter 3. He wants you to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. He he isn't saying that you don't have all the fullness of God. He wants you to know all of that. He wants you to understand all of that because then in a commensurate way you will live out to the praise of His glory. And if that is not happening in your life, In other words, if we are not living out our lives to the praise of His glory in a commensurate way to how God has praised us, and this chapter clearly lays all of that out, then there are truths about the spiritual blessings that we have been given in Jesus Christ that we either do not understand or that we are simply just willfully ignoring. We are prone to forget that. We are prone to forget these truths. I find it in my own life. There are times in our lives as Christians, many times in fact, whereby we are simply just living for us. We're not living to the praise of the glory of God. We're just living to the praise of us. We're living for us. We are living for our own glory rather than to the praise of His glory. In fact, turn over for a moment to 1 Peter or 2 Peter chapter 1. I think we turned here last time, but, but I want to show us this again. Second Peter chapter 1. Because Peter clearly shows this in his letter to the believers. He says, grace and peace, in verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you, chapter 1 in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You never say we lack anything from God. God has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. So pertaining to the temporal life here and now and pertaining to living godly in the here and now and in holiness in the future, God hasn't given, lacked us anything. How, would, how do we have that? Through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. And then he says, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. By what? By his glory and his excellence. He's granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So they're the things that, that bring us into the family, having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. 
So we, this is what saves us. And for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. So there's this understanding, believing in Jesus, moral excellence, which is living out. Moral excellence, your knowledge, you're growing in your understanding of God. Thereby you live out self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness, love. There's unity is the end result, the reality of the outworking of the love of God in your life. Notice what he says, if these qualities are yours and increasing, then they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he who lacks these is blind, short-sighted, having what? Forgotten his purification from his former sin. You see, you've forgotten something about what God has done for you. You've set those things aside. You've pushed them aside and you're living in such a way that isn't to the glory of His grace. And so what Paul is giving us here in Ephesians chapter 1 is not just some list of great truths that we can list out and write them out and however many you want to list there and all the prepositional phrases and everything else so that we can read over them and go, oh, that's a nice list. Wow, look at the list of things God gave me and then move on. No, these truths that He is giving to us are the very truths that when we understand them, when we grab hold of them, they are the, the motivating fuel for our proper Christian living. You can be rest assured if there's disunity among Christians and disunity within the church, it's because we've forgotten something here. We're not living this out. And so these are that important. And I've found over the years in the ministry that the troubles that we have in life, whether it be as a corporate body in the church or just an individual, they boil down to these realities. They boil down to a lack of understanding of of these things. What God has done, what Christ has done, what the Spirit has done in salvation. We don't understand that, and and in our understanding or our willful disregard for it, we're not living out to the praise of the glory of His grace. And so those are the three things that are failures to understand when it comes to who God is, a failure to understand who Jesus Christ is, a failure to understand what the Spirit has done in our salvation. So Christian people sadly have relationship troubles. Why? Well, just because we fail to know and thereby exercise our lives in light of who God is, in light of who Jesus Christ is in our lives, and therefore what it means to live out our salvation. So if we understand these things, if we, if we grab hold of them and, and, and begin to grow in our understanding of them and what the Bible means by what it says concerning God and concerning Christ and concerning our salvation, and then we live out our understanding to those things, then we will yield a life that is to the praise of the glory of His grace. When we don't, that's when trouble comes. So Paul says, just as He chose us in Him. In other words, God has done all of this for you, and you, as he says in chapter 5, verse 1, you be an imitator of God. You be an imitator of God. So what has God done for us? That's the question we posed all along as we began to study back in verse 3. Well, first, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's exactly what it says in verse 4. So that we would be holy and blameless before Him. So God elected us, and when we understand that our salvation is not up to us, and that it's all up to God, then there is a great unity in the church. We think we had something to do with it. When we think we're somebody that, hey, listen, I'm the guy who needs to be elevated or I'm the one who needs to be whatever it is. We think we're the person rather than God being the person, then we have a problem. So this is another reason why Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. Because the body of Christ, the church, is to be unified. Some of the Jews had difficulty with that. In fact, this is exactly what he says in verse 11 of chapter 4 and following. Paul says he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So as a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves of waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted together and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the body, causes growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So, The whole point of Paul is that he wants the church to walk in such a way that people see the grace of God's glory, the glory of God's grace upon us. So we, the believers, are the body of Christ in this world. Christ is now in the glories of heaven, but we are his body. He is the head, we are the branches. Therefore, we are to live as those who are like Christ. We are to be like Christ. Christ. The character of Christ is to be reflected in us as we walk through this world. We are the church. But how did, how did we get here? How did we, we get into the church? Paul says God chose us. God chose us before he ever created anything. That's where Paul begins. He goes back to before creation. Before God ever created, God decided to have a people that would reflect His character and His nature. God chose that His creation would be such that it would reflect the very character of Him and, and be to the praise of His glory. And through them, He would reflect the perfect unity that we find in the Godhead between the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And in doing that, it would be a praise to His Glory, And so the first part of creating the church is that he chose. We didn't choose him. He chose us in Christ. He chose us to be the body. And he chose us so that in the final analysis, we would be holy and blameless before him. That's a a wonderful truth to understand. A wonderful truth to know and to have solidified in your own heart. That God has chosen you as a believer to be holy and blameless. Not to be unholy and blameful, blameworthy. No, He chose us to be holy and blameless. This is exactly what Philippians chapter 1, verse 16 says. He who began a good work in you will complete it till the day of Christ. God has chosen us so that we would be holy and blameless before Him. And there's no other way that that is going to happen other than through God's work in us. It's it's not as if it won't happen with us. Why? Because He who began a good work in us will complete it. So when you think there's no way that God would ever accept me, you have to go back to your understanding of what God has done. God chose you in Christ. He doesn't accept you in you. He accepts us in Christ and only in Christ. We are only holy and blameless in Christ. We are only holy and blameless before Him in Christ. It's not in us. This is what makes it makes it. Such sad oxymoronic foolishness to think that somehow we in and of ourselves without Jesus Christ can be in the presence of God in the glories of heaven. That every other religion that wants to accept some kind of way to heaven without Jesus Christ thinks that they will be acceptable in the, with God, holy with God without Jesus Christ. Well, there's no way to be there. God accepts no other And so what did God do in order to make that happen? How is it going to be worked out in time? How, when He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to make us holy and blameless, how is that going to be worked out in time? Well, first, it was going to be worked out in time because He predestined it to be so. That's what verse 5 says. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons, get, get this, once again, through Jesus Christ. He didn't predestined us to adoption as sons because He 
looked down through some annals of time and saw that we were loving people and that he would like to spend time with us and therefore he adopted us into his family. No, he adopted us into his family because he predetermined to adopt us through his son, Jesus Christ, to himself. It was according to, notice, the kind intention of his will. We have to understand that. We have to realize that everything's under God's control. God is the predeterminer of all things. So he predetermined to adopt us as his children. Again, Paul is going back to the beginnings before beginnings ever began in the mind of God. God determined to make us sons. And so he chose us in Christ that we would be holy and blameless before him. And how does that happen in time? It happens in time because God carried out this predetermined plan in which we are chosen. The reason any of us sit here tonight isn't because of us, it's because of God. And so Paul begins to tell us in verse 7, where I want to just spend our time tonight in this section, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. This is how it's worked out. This is how this holy and blamelessness before God in Christ is worked out in time. This is how the predetermined plan of a God to adopt us as sons through Christ to Himself, which is according to His will, works itself out in the time that God created. In Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption. This is where we were last time as we were together in our study of Ephesians. It says, in whom we have redemption. That's the driving reality. Redemption. Paul mentions it several times in the following verses. This whole idea of redemption. You notice down in verse 14, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. That's He's saying the same thing again. That's us. He's talking about us. Right? This redemption is through His blood for the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace in which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight having made known to us the mystery of His will according to the kind intention which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of time that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things upon the earth. So the great goal of all of this is that Christ would be exalted above all things, that all things would be under Christ and Christ Christ goes before the Father and the Godhead, Christ the Son, God the Father, and the Spirit are all one in this perfect unity, and those whom they have created to the praise of the glory of their grace are unified in that same way. We are, we are sucked up like, a, like the most expensive Dyson vacuum into the love relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. You couldn't get more clear definition of redemption than how it comes here from the Apostle Paul. In order for God to bring His elect people into an inheritance that He has predestined for them, He had to redeem them. We talked about it last time. What is redemption? We defined it last time, but I want to give it to us again because it's been probably four weeks since we've heard it. Here's the definition, right? Redemption is an act of God. That's where we have to start, right? Being redeemed is an act of God. It is not an act of us. It is not a participation by us in our own redemption. We are the ones who need to be redeemed. We cannot redeem ourselves. God has to redeem. So redemption is an act of God by which He Himself, He Himself pays a ransom price for sin. Sin which violates His holiness. The redemption is an act of God by which He Himself pays a ransom price for sin which has violated His holiness. Now that is saying that the reality of redemption is, or the result of redemption, I should say, is a freedom. It is a rescue by means of a payment, by means of a ransom price. It's interesting that when you look up redemption in the original language in the New Testament, 
you find that there are two basic words translated for redemption. One begins with the root word agora, and uh, agora is just the open market in in uh, other countries. That's what it's called. The agora in ancient times was that place where you'd go, the open market, to buy your food, buy your goods, what you might need for the day. And in the verb form, it's agorazo, which means to buy out of the marketplace. So agorazo is you go to the market, you buy from the market. And so you go to the agora, the market, and you would agorazo, you would buy, you would buy out of the marketplace. Each of those words look at the place. Each of those words look at the act of buying. That's what's behind those words, the place of buying and the act of buying. But that's not the word that the Apostle Paul is using here in verse 7. He's using a word that carries a whole lot more weight. The emphasis is totally different. It is the word apolutrosis. And the emphasis of apolutrosis is not on the place of buying or the act of buying. It is on the actual payment itself. That's where the emphasis lies, on what is the paid So the Greek word apolutrosis is a word that occurs only nine times in the New Testament, and it's always with the idea of a price paid, and the emphasis is on the payment itself, what the payment is. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. He came as a redemption for others. So when Paul wants us to understand our redemption, when it is to be a foundational truth that we get so that we live to the praise of the glory of that grace called redemption, what it took for God to set us free, he doesn't emphasize the place of the transaction, although that's important, right? Calvary, the cross. We talk about that a lot, and that's highly important. He doesn't emphasize the act of buying. He emphasizes the actual payment. In other words, what it cost God to buy us. It was in Him, he says. In Him we have redemption. So in Him we have apolutrosis through His blood. In other words, it cost God His own Son to set us free. That's what Paul's emphasizing. We have to understand that. When it costs God His only Son to set us free, how dare we be disunified with one another when we step on one another's toes? When we challenge one another with our little self-idiosyncrasies. Redemption is our deliverance. Our deliverance from the thing that caused us the most struggle with God, and that is the slavery to sin. So God set us free by the payment of Christ. We know there are a whole lot of passages in the New Testament where Christ is in his sufferings are represented under the idea of a ransom or a price. And the result of that is thereby the purchase or redemption that takes place. Right? Colossians 1.14 is clear. He transferred us from the domain of darkness into the realm of his son. So the debt against us is not viewed as something that just simply has been canceled, that God just overlooks it and goes, okay, yeah, whatever, I'm a gracious God, I won't deal with your sin, it's just canceled like that. No, it's fully paid. It's fully paid. Christ's blood, Christ's life, which He surrendered for us, is the ransom by which God Himself secured our deliverance from the slavery of sin and from its judicial consequences for all eternity. This is what we need to understand. One theology uh, put it this way, Christ saves us neither by the mere exercise of power, nor by His doctrine, nor by His example, nor by moral influence which He exerted, nor by any subjective influence on His people, whether natural or mystical, but as a satisfaction to divine justice as an expiation for sin, as a ransom from the curse and authority of the law, thus reconciling us to God by making it consistent with His perfection to exercise mercy towards sinners. 
what Paul was saying in Romans when he could be the just and the justifier. God could be just in that he punished sin in his son and thereby could be the justifier of those who were ungodly. So all people in the world are slaves, whether they like to think of themselves as slaves or not. We don't like that term in our society today. We don't like that term in the world. Trying to get rid of it in every kind of way and many places and in many ways it has horrific connotations and we certainly aren't saying that that's what we ought to talk about and think about and have slavery that way. But the fact of the matter is all people in the world are slaves. And the Bible tells us that it is sin that we are slaves to. Sin demands a price. Price has to be paid. What's the price? We know death. The wages of sin is death. And so in order for a sinner to be delivered from sin and its wage, the wage has to be paid. There must be a death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. What is remission? It's very basic level. It just means forgiveness. In other words, that which you had, you no longer have. Like being acquitted or pardoned really more so. So without the shedding of blood, sin remains attributed to us. That's what Hebrews 9.22 says. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness. And here, Paul says, in Him, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption, which is equal to, notice, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So the forgiveness, the remission of our sins. Jesus has set us free from being a slave to sin. Why? Because God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. There's no way for us to be holy and blameless before Him unless God did something. And so He sent His Son to pay the redemption price so that we could be forgiven. Galatians 5 says that I've quoted this a lot. Some of you are getting tired of me quoting it. When we were studying Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it was for freedom that Christ set you free. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. You're not a slave to sin any longer. Christ has set you free. Therefore, live as a free man. Jesus has delivered us. He has rescued us from slavery. Like I said, Colossians 1, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us into the kingdom of His dear Son, So God the Father, through God the Son, came to the agora of the world, came to the marketplace of sin, and He paid the price for our freedom from slavery. And He did it, verse 7 says, according to the riches of His grace. So once again, that means we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. It wasn't because of our worthiness. It was according to the riches of His grace alone in which He chose to lavish upon us. Verse 8. He lavished it upon us. Covered us with it. Well, this is important for us because as sinners, we alone in the presence of God are not holy and blameless. Standing by ourselves, we are slaves to sin and we are worthy of the penalty of sin according to the law of God, which is eternal death. And yet God, by His grace, by His mercy, according to the kind intention of His will, sends His Son to pay the redemption price of death so that we might be made free from that penalty. And in doing so, the debt we owe is now gone. The debt has been canceled, forgiven. It's the Greek word aphasis. It means to, to, to just wipe away. It isn't that it's wiped off the books in some arbitrary fashion simply because God just decided to wipe it off the books. No. It's wiped off because it's been paid in full. That's why. And so where we were once a slave before God, now we are free in and through the Son of God. And so it's in the Son, in the Beloved One, in Him, and only in Him that we are freed from the bondage of sin. You cannot be freed any other way. There is no other way. And so the reason that we are accepted by God the Father 
is simply because of God the Son. Our sins have been sent away, never to return again. And all of that was happening in the mind of God before He ever spoke a word at creation. All of this plan was in the mind and the heart of God before any of it was ever out coming to pass. And so our sins were already, think about it, think about it, this blows your mind, theologically speaking, our sins were already in the mind of God forgiven before the world was ever created. Why? Because of the Son. Because of Jesus Christ. And the unfortunate part is that far too often we as Christians live our lives opposite to who we are in Christ. Right? Instead of living to the praise of the glory of His grace and understanding that we have been forgiven in Christ, not as licensed to do whatever we want, but out of a, a gratitude to God for all that He's accomplished, we live as if we're not standing in grace at all. We live as if God is some cosmic killjoy waiting to just crush us. And so we go through circumstances, we go through life's troubles, we go through difficulties in life, and we despair simply because we've forgotten who we are in Christ. We've forgotten that God doesn't see us in our humanity. He sees us in our Savior. We can start believing that God is actually against us rather than for us when we don't see Him rightly. Well, as children of God, we must know for sure that God is not against us. We have to know for sure that God is for us. He cannot be against us. Why? Because God sent our sin and its penalty away. Think about that. Sometimes we ask that silly question, particularly kids like to ask this question, what is something God? it's impossible for God to do? Well, it's impossible for God to reject you as his child. You realize that? It's impossible for God to reject you as his child because you are secure in the Son. For him to reject you is for him to reject the Son. He cannot. The penalty has been sent away. In fact, Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me. Why? Because I have redeemed you. Isaiah 44, 22. We sit here sometimes and go, I don't deserve it. That's the point. That's the point. When we say that, we ought to internalize that and go, you're right. We don't deserve it. Of course we don't deserve it. That's why it's called grace. Unmerited favor. You didn't merit the favor that God has shown you. It was according to the riches of His grace and its riches in grace that he lavished on us. It is any wonder that Paul says to Timothy, you stand in grace. I remember years ago preaching in Ohio and one of the guys in the congregation had such a soft conscience all the time and he would come up to me and say, Pastor, where's the grace? He would always say that to me when I was preaching. Sometimes I can be pretty exhortative. And he'd say, where's the grace? I said, brother, it's all grace. We stand in grace. That's where we stand. He chose us to be holy and blameless. And notice, not only do we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins, but also in Christ, God has given us ability to understand Him. To live according to that understanding. Notice what He says at the end of verse 8. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to the kind intention which He purposed in Him. The kind intention of His will. God not only has forgiven us our sins, wiped our sins away in Christ, but He has equipped us with the ability to be discerning about His will. He chose us to be holy and blameless. He adopted us as sons. He redeems us through uh, His Son so that we have the forgiveness of our sins. And then He equips us with the ability to understand Him. We can understand the Word of God. It informs us. If we lack wisdom, we go to God. Why? Because God's the one who holds nothing back from His children. 
And so we can answer even the most difficult questions with the Word of God. Why? Because God leads us in truth. People say, well, I don't know enough about the Bible. Well, you don't have to know everything about the Bible. You just have to go to the Bible. You just have to search the Bible. God has the answers for everything. I don't need to be some intellectual genius to to be able to answer someone's questions. I just need to know the Bible. He leads me in truth, and He has made it such that we are equipped to live that truth out before the world. We know the mystery of His will. What's the mystery of His will? Unity in the body. Unity that's born through Jesus Christ. This is the view that he's talking about in verse 10 with this administration suitable to the fullness of times. In other words, that in the full times, everything's going to be in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. Christ is the summing up of all things. So we know the mystery of His will. We know how to know Jesus Christ through His Word. He has lavished on us all that we have in Christ. Mystery, mysterion, the, the unknown things before, the things that, are, that, that the, the carnal man cannot know. This is why humanity without Jesus Christ is so confused about things of the spiritual realm because they cannot know the truth of the spiritual realm without God causing their understanding to to know these things, and the only way you can have that is be in Christ. So anybody who rejects Christ knows nothing of God. All they can know of God is what God has revealed to Himself through His general revelation, the invisible attributes of God that are clearly known by what is seen. And so if you worship the creature rather than the Creator, you can have a mind that just gets darker and darker and darker. You don't know anything. You spew. You talk like you know everything, but you know nothing. In fact, that's exactly what it says in Romans chapter 1. Just to kind of get it in our mind. Just amazing the way the Apostle Paul puts this. Romans chapter 1. Even though they knew God, verse 21, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. You see what I mean? The things they spew wisdom about, it's just futile, it's nonsense. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Morons, that's the word, moronic. They profess to be the great sophists of the day, the wise ones of the day, the professors who know everything, and yet they're fools. Why? Because they have rejected God. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Listen, PETA is their God. And so God gives them over to their own hearts. They dishonor themselves. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. Verse 25, they worship and serve the creature creature rather than the creator who is to be blessed forever. So what happens? The spiral just continues. Downward, downward, downward it goes. They grow worse and worse in the darkening of their mind. And so God gives them over to degrading passions. Women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. That is rampant today. It's almost as if we're living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Same way, men abandon the natural function of women and burn their desire toward one another. Men committing indecent acts, receiving in their own persons the penalty of the error. I mean, listen, they are celebrating this entire month as if it's such a joy. The leader of our very country is celebrating it as if it's something to be championed. And so they don't see fit to acknowledge God any longer. God gives them over to a depraved mind to do those things which aren't proper. And I want you to notice that you think, okay, this is the bottom of the barrel when it comes to spiraling down to the heart of darkness. And yet in that list is disobedient to parents. Anti-authority. That's the idea. They're haters of God. They're slanderers. They're gossips. They're murderers. Full of envy and greed and evil. Slanderers. Arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, and disobedient to parents. You'd think that wouldn't be at the bottom of the barrel because some people think, oh, that's no big deal. Yet God sees it as a very big deal. Why? Because it's an anti-authority attitude. It's an anti-submissive attitude. 
And if you begin as a child to have that anti-heart, that anti-authority heart, it only grows into a greater and greater anti-authority heart. And so it becomes an anti-authority heart for what God has put over man, which is the government of man and the authorities that are under that, the police and everybody else who have been given delegated authority over man. And it gets abused and it gets fought against. And we want to defund the police. We want to defund everything else. Why? Because it's anti-authority. And that anti-authority started back when they were children. And anti-authority goes all the way to the leadership of our own country and the world. They want nothing to do with anything over them, which is why they fight so hard for the anti-Christian agenda. Paul says we're not to be like that. We're not to be like that. We're to live to the praise of the glory of His grace. We're to be so different than that. Our lives are to be so different than that. So changed by who we are. We're to be so outside of that realm that when people see us, all they see is Christ. But we've been chosen by God. He predestined it to happen. And since He chose us, we need to be holy and blameless before Him as He has predestined it to be. He made us holy and blameless in Jesus Christ, and now we live holy and blameless lives here and now. So He purpose to send God the Son in order to secure our redemption and thereby forgiving our sins, not just for a time, but forever and ever. And He gave us the wisdom and insight into His will so that we might understand all that He desires through Christ. Be unified as a church, unified in the body. It's all ours through faith in Jesus Christ. And because of it, we ought to be living to the praise of the glory of His grace. This is the end of which Paul's going to go to. Right, verse 22, he's going to say, He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Not who you were before. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive in Christ, he said. This is what Paul's driving at through this whole thing. Understand what you have in Christ, what God has done for you, and begin to live that out in your life. Well, I'm exhausted, are you? I mean, this is, this is so, so rich, so phenomenal, so deep. That we, we, we're really just scratching the surface of it. And the good thing is God's given us more days to do it, hasn't he? We get to come back and do it again. Not next week, it's Father's Day. There's no evening service next week, but the week after that, we will certainly be here again. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for tonight. What a privilege it is just to be here together. Lord, we pray that there would be more with us. We know in our morning times together, the church is filled with people. Yet it seems such a, such a shocking thing that in our times of the evening, where are the body? Where are our brothers and sisters in Christ? Some certainly cannot be here for various reasons, but many can and they're not. Lord, how do we encourage them? How do we live out an example before them? How do we help them? How do we not be arrogant? Lord, help us with that through our understanding of what you have done for us in Christ. Help us to be unified in the body. Build this body up to the growth of understanding in you so that you would be seen in us and this world would come to know Jesus Christ. That's our hope. We praise you for that, Lord. May this motivate us this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.